Hello. Hello. <laughs> Taking a Hello. very deep breath at the beginning here. Hello, welcome. This is Plants and Pipettes, the podcast. I'm Joram. I'm Tegan, and we tend to talk about plants and molecular biology and a lot of other random science-related crap at the same time. Yeah. And I try to like think back of last about last week what I've been doing and every week it's less that I that I can scramble together to tell something <laughs> exciting. I continued my sewing class, so I have a, a t-shirt done now where the shoulders and part of one collar is sewn in and I will continue to finish you, that. You might want to explain what you're actually making. Hmm? Yeah, what I'm, are making, you making? I'm making a t-shirt. I'm just making a, a yeah. basic t-shirt. And so now I, I have don't think you said that. Either I wasn't listening or you haven't said that before. No, but uh, that's why I said like I have a half a t-shirt sewn and because it's the t-shirt is what I'm making. Um, and that's pretty much the highlight. And the other thing is like I'm I'm getting so old and I'm actually excited about cleaning up the shed and having a shed that's m more neatly organized. And I'm mm. generally excited about that. And it's just, yeah, it's together yeah. with my, my hair that's turning gray. This is a sign of me definitely going into like the real adulthood. Yeah, but the hair's probably gray because of the PhD or the baby, whereas like the yeah. shed is just like and age. general aging, like <laughs> non-environmental aging. What, what else do we have these days apart from like excited excitement about sheds being cleaned? I mean, I've got banana bread. I've made two banana breads in the last week. And that's basically my aim in life right now is to eat banana bread. Um, <laughs> and I think it's a good aim. I'm putting chocolate in there. Um, I'm at the stage now where my teeth are fixed enough that I can actually like kind of bite slash suck on banana bread. So that's really exciting development in my, in my life, guys. Um, yeah. And you should all feel very special because the current batch of banana bread, I actually might have undercooked because i had to come to record this podcast for you all so you're welcome um <laughs> thank honestly, you very I don't, much i don't mind if it's banana dough i will also eat that that's not really a <laughs> big issue for me <laughs> yeah whenever i cook usually half of the the batter ends up um uncooked in my wife um that sounds mm. weird like by choice she eats it she yeah that doesn't sound like, great let me let me taste that let me try that and then half the bowl is gone um, but I think that's that's the point of making cookies and cake. Yeah, actually, I didn't even put any eggs into this, which because yeah, I just forgot so about it. I don't think you need eggs when you have banana. Yeah, um, usually you 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 exchange eggs with banana, so it should be fine. If you want things to taste like banana. Yeah. Yeah. We had an old colleague who used to hate bananas with a passion. Like he could smell <laughs> them from like a kilometer away, and he would just like, anytime anyone would eat a banana in the building, he would get super freaked out and annoyed. But it's also very strong flavor, as in you don't need a lot of banana to make the things taste like banana. Yeah, but Infinite is also the same man whose favorite cheese smelt like rotting feet. Like this was, <laughs> we once had a cheese party um, at our old work and the fridge just smelt like that cheese for weeks afterwards, even though we had removed the cheese. And everybody was like, why does the fridge smell weird? And we were just like, hmm, that's, hmm, yeah, strange that. Like, it was also in a lab where there was, uh, I think, a weekly or bi-weekly fridge uh, uh, or kitchen cleaning happening where all of the fridges mm -hmm. were cleaned and it would still smell. So like, yeah. That's yeah. that's good French cheese for you. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure I left some yogurt at work before we all evacuated for COVID. So, I mean, I'm assuming somebody decided to clean that shit out before everybody was gone. But if yeah. not, just burn everything. I've seen something on Twitter somewhere um, where people in a in a shopping mall or like in a in a like clothing store they turned off their HVAC and so the the air was wasn't dehumidified is that the right word humidified so, um so all of the leather started to mold there was mold Ooh. growing on all of the leather surfaces because the air got so humid in there because they wanted to save energy and it's sort of understandable but apparently shopping malls with products in them are not meant to be to have their their air conditioning shut down ever um, mm. if you want to pr preserve the product so they had to like throw everything out it looked quite disgusting it had like expensive leather handbags all covered in mold uh, when the workers came that back that could be a new trend though like that kind of furry fashion that was really big in the early noughties right we could just bring back like furry <laughs> shit but uh, like living it would be um I don't know, organic or what's what's the buzzword bio-organic Demeter fuzzy furry handbags yeah raw 
Like Fuzzy Fendi, raw Fuzzy Fendi. <laughs> New yeah. for um, what is it? Summer twenty twenty is the is the season we're going into now. Yeah, but I don't think anybody will be buying stuff to look nice for this year. I think we in the history books this will just be um, a break year where nothing really important happened. Nah, I'm dressing up for work, and I'm also doing more sewing again. So like, I think I'm going to start sewing weird shit and little do little <laughs> fashion shows for my housemate and my cat, and just. Yeah. make them convinced that i'm fully crazy i also just bought uh like a hundred euros worth of fabric too so so i'm excited to do that as well that's how it begins yeah yeah, yeah. it's really i saw a guy who had like um what's the word now in english in german it's payetten in english it's sequence sequence mm -hmm. yeah um, sequence um, a sequence covered face mask that looked pretty spectacular um yeah I don't have a lot of patience for that kind of stuff, though. I've I've tried doing some embroidery and just like. I thought you buy the fabric with the sequence already on it, and then you just. Oh use yeah, it like this is true. This you can definitely do. So I was I imagining you hand sewing. No, I guess I must. You know, really a labor of love. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I have one thing I want to say in the beginning. Um, that is that we are creeping up on episode fifty, and to celebrate that episode. I thought it would be nice if we got a little bit, uh, uh, um, a few more questions from you guys out there, our listeners. Just ask us anything that you wanted to know about us personally or um, plant science related to and or even general science stuff. So shoot us our questions over on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or you can send us an email. You'll find the contact details on our website. Um, yeah, and we're really happy to answer any and all questions about the past 50 episodes or something completely different or maybe the upcoming 50 episodes if you want to know what's coming up because we have it all planned <laughs> out. Yeah. Pretend that we're professional. Um, that's actually good. I had um, a listener question that came up via Facebook but I'll leave that until next episode or two episodes time or whatever. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Did, did, did we discuss this or did you just plan this or did you tell me and I just forgot? I, I told you about this. Okay. <laughs> you said all my ideas were great. The thing is, Yoram writes things down for me, like, on different apps and different technology things. And unless it's actually on a scrap of paper on my desk, I cannot find it. And he's like, oh, yes, I sent that to you via the, the What's Bumble or something. And I'm like, I just, <laughs> I just don't know how to use this. Like, I just don't know how to... I, I wish we could decide on one single messaging service, but whenever I'm using one, you're like, I oh, know, not this one. I send it to my computer, send it to my phone, send it to this thing. It's... Um, yeah. I, I'll try to force, like predict which I channel mean, is the right one at the moment. Imagine how confusing it is to be me. If you're struggling, just imagine <laughs> how it is for me to be like, like. I still don't really know how to use my iPhone properly to make it turn on and off silent at the times I want to. I now know there's a switch on the side of the phone. I figured that out like two days ago, and I've had the phone for what, like four months, um, <laughs> and on last Wednesday I was trying to like um, do work video me meetings and my video just wouldn't work like I don't know why the camera wouldn't um work it had been working the day before and it just wasn't working and then I was like all right it's just not working anymore and then a week later I had another meeting and I was like I just don't know why it's just not working and then one of the guys was like have you turned the camera on and I was like what <laughs> and apparently there's like a little switch near the camera where you can turn it on and off and <laughs> I just had somehow like hit it with my stupid hat I don't know like <laughs> Uh, guys it's it's hard life is hard <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's definitely it's hard um so shall we talk <laughs> a little bit about science <laughs> it's the paper of the week and this week's paper of the week is something i think we both found sort of um but you you messaged me that we should do it um, but then I, I later saw that I actually had bookmarked my Twitter as well, planning to like bring it up as well. It, it was everywhere, I think. Um, yeah, it was hard to miss. It, it hit, so it's a science paper, which is, woo, science paper. We often look at science to see if they've got anything plant-related, and pretty much they never do. Yeah, um, so <laughs> yeah it's rare. Well done, science. You finally stepped up your game and actually published some, some plant science. <laughs> Um, but it was also featured in Nature as like a kind of um, bloggy post about this article and it was on like all of the pop science websites as well. So it's it's been everywhere. Yeah. And uh, I think 
to give a general idea what this paper is about, I'm actually going to use the headline from the science article, which is cyber spinach turns sunlight into sugar, which cyber spinach is just a beautiful that makes me angry. combination of words. It's, it's very 90s. Like cyber is something we said in the 90s, cyberspace and so on. Now we I have mean, cyber spinach. Actually, at the end of this paper, they were talking about how they had built this like, yeah, combination artificial slash um, like mixing nature with with man-made. And I mean, I've been watching a lot of Buffy recently because that's where my life is right now. And it just reminded me of like the season where um, they create Adam, who's like half demon and half human and then another half of like robotics. That's too many halves. But you know what I mean? Uh Um Anyway, yeah, <laughs> it's not relevant. <laughs> no, it's, my it sounds really relevant science today. fiction. I'm sorry, guys. It sounds like science fiction. If you read uh, like towards the end of the paper, it really sounds like science fiction. So the paper that we're talking about is called "Light-Powered CO2 Fixation in a Chloroplast Mimic with Natural and Synthetic Parts" by uh, Taryn E. Miller uh, from the lab of Tobias J. Erb, uh, published in Science uh, in on the eighth of May, twenty twenty. It also sounds like. Um, when you get like a label on a food so with natural and artificial colors and <laughs> yeah. flavoring and then you know like it doesn't have anything natural it's all made out of like i don't know bubble gum they scraped off the black, black of a bus or like when they have this like you know um honey it's really hard to get like unadulterated pure european honey and then they'll have like honey sourced from europe and mm-hmm. um outside of europe which means it's like 99.9 percent like sugar water and then they've put a little bit of european yeah. beef okay yeah, really, i'm done <laughs> i really like the description on honey of like uh source from the european union and outside of the european union which means like everywhere it's like yeah. stuff from within the house and from outside the house <laughs> i think this is a thing that um was it george w bush once said about uh, osama bin laden it must have been whoever he was looking was it george w bush or was that even earlier um like we know he's either in like Afghanistan, um, some other place, or somewhere else. And I was like, "Yeah, I mean, prob- probably <laughs> yes." He that's that's probably accurate. We know that he exists. <laughs> so, like here, they have um, light-powered carbon dioxide fixation in a chloroplast mimic with natural and synthetic parts. And we want to know what would be the third part you would put in there if it wasn't natural and synthetic. I mean, the big thing here is it's not just natural parts. So we've always yeah. been able to have fixation in natural parts, and now we've got some th- synthetic stuff put in. Yeah. Um, and so this, yeah, the, the whole thing is about photosynthesis because carbon fixation, CO2 fixation is the, one of the defining traits of photosynthesis is that light energy is Yeah, we should say who it's from first. I said that. Taryn E. Miller from the and the, from the lab of Tobias J. Uh, published in Science, eighth of May, twenty twenty. Sorry, I'm I'm not getting a good connection here, so maybe I'm missing some of the stuff you're saying. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like <laughs> mentally, the, the, the Wi-Fi is fine, but mentally, I'm not really getting a good connection <laughs> today. I'm so tired. It's fine. I'm sorry, it's, guys. <laughs> uh, I think repetition is good for retention of knowledge for our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Not for me, man. <laughs> all right, sorry. Why is photosynthesis cool, Yoram? Tell us all about it. Um, the yeah, photosynthesis is a very cool process because uh, it uses the di- uh, directly light energy to transform it into chemical energy that's biologically available. Um, so that's uh, the the sugars that the plants make that immediately become food or feed. Um, there's uh, very complex nutrients in there and even biologically active compounds that we would use for medication and stuff like that. And all of that is made from water and light and very little else. Of course, there's also like fertilizers and so on at play, but really what drives this, what gives the energy to do all of this is light energy. And there's very few other processes that we have. We maybe have solar panels that directly use light, um, but a lot of our energy production is even relying on uh, energy that was fixed by light decade or like thousands of years ago uh, with our fossil fuels that are all um, coming from like that's energy that was once ca- captured by plants and it was then sort of concentrated in oil that we can burn now. Um, and so this is a technically very exciting and interesting process and that's why people are trying to sort of mimic, recreate that, use that, make um, technical applications or mimics of this this process for, for a long time. Because... Um, 
mechanistically, there's a couple of things you can harvest from photosynthesis. You can not only directly take the, the sugars or the carbon fixed carbon compounds. Um, you can also use the, the protons that are pumped during uh, photosynthesis across the membrane um, uh, to create hydrogen that you can then use as fuel as well. Um, and the whole system is uh, in plants is self-assembling, self-repairing, and has very low maintenance compared to uh, many other technical approaches. And that's why it's so interesting for people to sort of recreate it, to use this as inspiration for technical systems. And then kind of like on the tangent of this idea of like creating photosynthesis from scratch, it's also the idea that we've talked about a few other times on the blog, which is that the photosynthesis that plants do, Yoram just said, it's really, really amazing, but also it's a little bit shit. Um, and there's kind of this idea with scientists that um, in the future, if we want to improve the amount of food and fee, uh, f like, yeah, all of the, the beautiful things that plants are making, we might be able to kind of tinker a little bit with photosynthesis and then make that more efficient as a process as well. So there's kind of two overlapping ideas here, I would say. And I read a little bit about um, the efficiency of photosynthesis compared to other systems. And it depends sort of uh, what you measure. Um, if you just uh, take the carbon that's fixed into sugars so to, and use that as fuel um, and compare that to something like uh, solar panels, plants are about like 3 to 5% efficient, while solar panels are around 10%. So they are better, but at the same time, yeah, for plants you don't need you don't need to build the plant like you need to build a solar panel. So if you take all of these things into account, um, it's it's a bit more complicated. But there is some idea that plants uh, only use um, specific wavelengths that they absorb, and if we could tune them, that they can absorb a broader range of wavelengths and, and capture the energy they would have more energy input into the system. And if they could then deal with this amount of input, then they could potentially have much more output. And that's one of the things that people are working on. Hmm. So, um, yeah, this paper is from some authors who are kind of synthetic biologists. Yeah, and it's, um, it's building off a previous work by the same lab um, where it was published in 2016. Um, where they kind of already created an artificial um, pathway that can fix carbon in vitro. But the carbon fixing it's doing, it's the second part of photosynthesis. So it's it's the light independent reactions. Um, so they're not actually linking that to any light fixation. It's just the, the carbon fixation part. So like in the plant, you have the kind of the membranes and you have all of the... Um, like photosystem one, photosystem two, which actually capture the light, and they kind of create um, the like the the proton power, and also like what is needed to then do, like energize the second thing, which is the fixation of carbon by Rubisco. So they basically did that second bit. They didn't use Rubisco; they used an artificial system which had like seventeen different enzymes. Um, it's called the Ketch. I also don't know how they pronounce it. Is it the Ketch? Ketch. It's C-E-T-C-H. It yeah. definitely seems like a German word, like catch. Yeah, I, I, I must assume that it's an acronym, um, but I actually didn't look yeah. into, into it. I just. <laughs> but, I mean, fetch would be F-E-T-C-H, right? So it's just catch then, yeah. or setch, depending if it's a hard or a soft C. Yeah. Um, what I found exciting about the setch cycle is that they not only use these 17 enzymes, they sort of... Uh, mixed and matched these enzymes from very different organisms and even engineered three of these enzymes to work in the cycle. So it's already a synthetic um, cycle that, did, that doesn't exist like this uh, anywhere else in nature. Um, it's just mm -hmm. by very skillfully combining a couple of enzymes together that sort of one fits to the output of the previous one and its output fits into the next one. Um, and I think that's, that's already pretty cool, but that's, that's just, that's old news. That's 2016. That's, that's <laughs> ancient. Um, and as we said, um, that is just the light independent or the dark reactions of photosynthesis that they had done there. And again, newly made ones, as your arm said. So now what we're doing is putting together the light part and the dark part. And to, first get something that's able to take up the light and use its energy. They isolated spinach chloroplasts um, and more specifically the membranes within the chloroplast that contain the photosynthetic complexes uh, and, and proteins, um, so the thylakoid membrane stacks. They isolated those and um, then they put them in very specific lipid droplets that mimic 
cellular conditions but are not real cells um, and why uh, spinach you might ask well spinach it's really easy to buy from the store and isolate a lot of chloroplast from it's pretty commonly used in like the chloroplast field just because yeah, yeah people found it easy way back when and now it's kind of a model yeah, uh, I think I even read somewhere in in the material and methods section of a different paper that they said yeah the spinach was sourced from the local market in the morning of the experiment. Um, I love that. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we went down to Woolworths or um, Aldi and yeah, <laughs> shopped some spinach and then we did science with it. Uh, and they put them these membranes into the lipid droplets. And they could see mm. that there is photosynthetic activity. They could see that there was uh, carbon fixation happening, um, uh, but they had to replenish some uh, yeah, key elements in the system because it wasn't it within its native state where all of the sort of natural regenerating um, enzymes were active. So they had to uh, add some precursors and some acceptors for the electrons in there, namely uh, mostly the ferrodoxin, right? Or did they do that later in the experiment? No, I think they did it there already. This was actually something that I wasn't sure. So they, they were talking at the start of the um, paper about having to optimize to get like these um, spinach thylakoid membranes to kind of retain their activity. And I think this is one of the big flaws of this being like a long-term thing is that these are isolated thylakoid membranes which will die because like chloroplast thylakoid membranes and the complexes within them, they're not just made from, um, the proteins are not just made from genes that are encoded by the plastid, um, they're encoded by the nucleus as well. And there's literally like thousands of different genes that are all coming to make a, a working chloroplast. And when you isolate just the thylakoid membranes, you don't even have the entire chloroplast. So you probably don't have the chloroplast genome and you don't have all of the machinery required to make things from the chloroplast genome, but you definitely don't have the nuclear genome and all of the cytosolic machinery to make stuff from the nuclear genome. So these guys do have a limited lifespan. Um, and there's some other issues that will kind of help them die. So they're going to get stress. They're going to get um, light stress. And uh, one of the things that the, the authors had to add was um, some like dismutases, maybe superoxide dismutase and catalase. So things which um, scavenge reactive, reactive oxygen species um, to keep these thylakoids membranes alive for a long time. Um, and then they also sh saw that if they were kept like in the cold and in the dark basically or in the dark they were like stable for no on ice they were stable for 24 hours um whereas if they were like in the dark or at room temperature they were only like lasting for two hours so this is kind of a, a thing but i have to admit i wasn't certain at which stage the different optimizations i i understood that they optimized at the start and then that carried on throughout the whole they had to always do these kind of mm -hmm. helping things but i wasn't really super certain about that yeah but they uh, I imagine it a little bit like an intensive care unit where you have um, a body and you have multiple like organs failing because essentially here they were missing and they had to constantly use machines and, and in this case molecules um, to sort of make up for the lack of certain organs of certain functions to keep the entire system running. Um, mm -hmm. Because what they actually wanted to do um, was not just only put the thylakoid membranes in lipid droplets. Uh, similar things have been done before where people isolate the thylakoid membranes and could show if you isolate them for a, for a while, they're still active and yeah. uh, eventually they will die down. They wanted to see if they could combine them with parts of the SETCH pathway. Um, mm -hmm. And so they mixed individual enzymes, but they saw if they just put them together with their lipid droplets um, in a sort of bulk experiment, it wouldn't work. It would be really hard to identify the things that work because the, the enzymes would be um, unequally incorporated into these drop droplets and they were hard to analyze. And so overall, they couldn't get a good readout. So they turned to a very fancy technique, which is um, microfluidics. Mm-hmm. So this is um, what they said is the second big part of this paper, kind of the two puzzle pieces. So the first one is having this catch, setch, and the second was um, having the, the micro, microfluidics to kind of make something that resembled a chloroplast. So this is basically um, playing around with very, very small amounts of fluid. So um, already in the lab, we often work with microliters, which are one thousandth of a milliliter. Um, and then they're working with picoliters, which is another one thousandth of that 
No, even more. A millionth Another of that. millionth of that. It's like yeah, nanoliters so it's and like picoliters, yeah. Yeah, microliter is a liter ten, 10 to the negative 6 and pico is 10 to the negative 12. So like really, really, really tiny amounts of um, liquid. And yeah, essentially, the amount of liquid is um, comparable to that of a cell because the, the size of the thing was tens to hundreds of micrometers was the size of the droplet, um, mm -hmm. which is sizes of some cells. Or is it organelles? I think bacteria are this size. Yeah, but this is um, this is kind of general microfluidics. I'm not sure exactly how big they had their. Um, it's in the paper, I'm sure, but I'm not sure how big. But they, they said in the paper in a couple of times that they were like cell-sized lipid droplets. So I guess they oh, were okay. that small. Mm -hmm. So they created these like tiny artificial cells. Although, as a biologist, um, a cell to me still needs to have sort of a nucleus or nuclear type nucleus uh, similar thing um, something driving it yeah and yeah it needs to be a little, a little more than just a couple of membranes in a droplet but just to imagine this is sort of they created a little artificial cell that could um, do a little bit of uh, photosynthetic activity with these uh, thylakoid membranes and some of the molecules of the Sedge pathway does a cell have to have a nucleus? Is, no, a cell no, doesn't have to have a nucleus. No, bacteria don't have a nucleus. But that's why exactly. I said like a similar thing. They but have it has like, to have like DNA in there, you think? Yeah, they have like How do we anchor. define a cell? It has to have DNA inside, maybe. Yeah, to me it would have... Uh, although there's probably like some weirdo cells within like multicellular organisms that don't have DNA. Yeah, red blood cells. Um, They've killed off their DNA. Uh, companion cells. No, phloem sieve tube cells. They're all hollow inside. They, they like dead cells the lipid droplets they don't have a bilipid double membrane or, or, or that bilipid membrane um it's just like the lipid mm. itself um f throughout the thing and i guess that would be something i'm trying to go back to like how we learned this in school but in in school we learned this in a very like this is a plant cell this is an animal cell they both have a nucleus the the plant cell also has chloroplast so yeah. i don't know i mean i think as with all human definitions, there's clear flaws because we try to like delineate things and put them in nice little boxes with like binary definitions. And it just doesn't, doesn't work out like that, does it? Um, according to Britannica, it's um, the basic membrane-bound unit that contains all the fun fundamental molecules of life uh, of which all living things are composed. But yeah, but that's like a backwards definition to me because that's like if you take life and you put it in a blender, you have cells, which doesn't seem helpful yeah. to me. But you know what? I'm not a visual person. <laughs> um, just imagining putting I, things in a blender. And okay, also, sorry, um, also in biology, you always have an exception. Whatever definition you came, come up with, you'll find some weirdo in biology that doesn't and fit. I, have, I actually have a fun fact about that. Um, let's move on with the paper. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> before they did this publication, they already had the search. Before this publication happened, they also, people had already tried isolating thylakoid membranes and could show that they were kind of still active for a little bit before they died. So here what we're trying to do is get the two together and put them inside an artificial cell. And did it work, Yoram? Um, yeah, with the individual uh, enzymes, it worked already. Um, but obviously mm -hmm. there was always uh, something missing because it wasn't a full cycle. Um, and with a lot of optimization of the microfluidics platform, they actually managed to get all of the 17 enzymes into the droplet together with the thylakoids. And they could um, work it in a way that the thylakoids would absorb light, um, produce the energy that's needed to run then the cycle um, to fix the... Um, to fix carbon dioxide and turn it into glycolate. Um, and so essentially they recreated a photosynthetic system. They had something mm. that captures the light. That's the natural part. That's the thylakoid. That's the photosystems and the photosynthetic uh, electron transport chain. And then they had the second half of it. That's in plants is Rubisco. And here there was no Rubisco. There was just Sedge that would then um, run and take the energy from the light and fix carbon uh, fix co2 into glycolate which is a very common and very accessible form of carbon of organic carbon storage the other thing is i think um you did mention before the addition i think they still had to like this is the thing i wasn't sure about so in the earlier test they had to still add nadph to get regeneration of the um ferret 
no, they had to, sorry, to get an ADPH regeneration, they had to add ferrodoxin um, externally. And I wasn't certain in the final product if they were still adding things like that externally. I, I wasn't also don't sure know, how. But I think they must have done something like this. Yeah, but then also because you've now got like it's inside the microfluidic droplets. I'm not sure how that's getting in. That wasn't really clear to me. But I also didn't. I didn't. I did a really quite a quick read, and I didn't read the supplementary. I have to admit. There were quite a lot of supplementary, um, but overall, it's still um, to sort of summarize what I've been doing um, for synthetic biology. This is really cool stuff because yeah. um synthetic biology is still in its very early days and so um they're still figuring out to recreate sort of the basic the main roads of metabolic pathways that are happening in the cell and photosynthesis is one of the more elusive ones um mm. there have been like artificial systems for alternative carbon uptakes in to like to to recreate bacterial systems and so on but photosynthesis was uh, a hard thing to do and while this is not a fully synthetic photosynthetic system yet it's a large step in that direction so that's really cool uh, but i think it's important to keep in mind hmm? yeah i i mean i'm i'm personally a light reactions of photosystems girl so i'm more interested in what's happening <laughs> yeah. in the membranes like because i my, my previous research was on building up thylakoid membranes than the dark reactions with all the rubisco stuff i frankly don't know what happens there and i don't want to know i don't care about it uh, <laughs> sorry rubisco um so for me i feel like they've done the less complex part but <laughs> that doesn't mean it's not really amazing i mean like I mean, on the other hand, I think like Rubisco <laughs> is one of these Rubisco is one of these things that are that gets so much praise for being such a cool enzyme because yeah, there's no other natural enzyme that fixes carbon like Rubisco fixes carbon, uh, and they created an artificial system that fixes carbon. Um, so that's that's pretty cool. But I also my my heart also beats for f um, the photo systems uh, specifically. And there, there are other systems that can also fix carbon artificially, right? This is not like also the only one. Yeah. Kit catch. Um, no, but this this is definitely cool to be able to couple the two things and like to actually this in itself, the fact that you can get artificial stuff and shove it in and make like a functioning like Frankensteinian monster is is really i mean it's really really important because ultimately we want to be able to do that in a yeah. clean way and yeah yeah because it's, it's pretty cool there would there would be so much potential but it's so it's way too early to actually um to just take the headline now and think now we have figured out photosynthesis we can bend it at will and create our own artificial plants um because this thing works in the, under very controlled conditions in a very specific case. Um, so it's far away from even being close to something like a crop plant where you just put seeds on a soil, you water it, and then you get like a fully functioning photosynthetic system that fixes carbon and then you can harvest it and, and eat it or use it for other things, use it as biofuel or whatever. Um, this is just such a... Um, easy to use system that is the synthetic biology is still very very far away uh, also their system relies on the isolation of thylakoid membranes from spinach um, which is something that's time consuming slow and also sort of missing the point you have already everything happened in the spinach leaf then you isolate it take a part away and then you add your synthetic part to it so this is really um, a big advancement for for synthetic biology but it's really far from application um, i just want to say that because i have the feeling some people read headlines or see like very the short bits of the news and then they get super excited or scared or anything in between um, and say ah yeah now we can do our own artificial photosynthesis the is coming for us ah. yeah and we yeah, can't think, do that um, yet i think that is one of the the sad things about plant biology is that this is really really amazing but yes you cannot now have these magical plants and people want to see like the magical output thing right i think that's kind of yeah 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 but and, uh, nevertheless very cool uh, very uh, very deserved science paper in my opinion um uh, very exciting stuff uh, I think you yeah. even had uh, a quote from him from. I had the a lab. quote which I think is not. It's not from the article. It was from um, the news piece that was in Nature, and it's from Arab, who I think is the um, the last primary. Author. Yeah, exactly the last author. So I guess the PI of the lab. 
um, Thomas Erb, and he said at the end, nature can be very conservative. It never explored the full range of photosynthesis options. That's what really excites us. We can realize solutions nature has never touched on. And that's, that's kind of the secret here. Yeah. It's quite cool. So that was light-powered CO2 fixation in a chloroplast mimic with natural and synthetic parts by Miller et al. And it came out in Science uh, last month, this month. Hi, first mm-hmm. I have a comment and then I have a question. Um, I have a question. I have a question about... Um, this is the segment where we take <laughs> your listener questions. <laughs> I always surprise Tegan with these jingles. Um, <laughs> I make it um, today I found that there's a lot of uh, public archives from um, t- TV and radio shows that you can, where you can search in the transcripts and then you can sort of cut things out and sample them. That's what I did here. Um, so I have a listener question that was asked by Twitter, I think, a week or two ago um, from Cathartic Outlet at Cathartic Outlet um, who asks uh, kind of random but do you have a favorite whole genome duplication event in the angiosperm lineage and I do do you have one Tegan I ask you this to, <laughs> like somewhere this afternoon so I don't know if you actually had time to think about your favorite genome duplication event uh, you didn't actually specify that it had to be in the angiosperm lineage either so I was just like can I'll- I just have like I give you a duplication. pass. Because like the duplication that allowed like my cells to then divide and become a person after the fertilization event, like to create me, like that's that's pretty. But I think also what she means is like these evolutionary whole genome duplication, which is different from just um, normal yeah. cellular duplication, right? Yeah, and it's something that's very specific to plants. I would say there's sometimes a thing where you can get these. Um, interspecies hybrids and so it's like for tobacco where you get um two different parents and they come together and because they might have different numbers of chromosomes those are then creating like an uneven number so often there's a duplication event that's involved in these hybridizations to make it kind of double and go back up to an even number again so i would say something like that but i can't think of a specific example um, yeah, I think tobacco is one that I thought of as well because we use it in a lab. Um, yeah, weed but is another is a jerk. one. Uh huh. Sorry. Tobacco is a jerk. Yeah, it's like, it, it's very the terrible. The problem is like these kind of like these hybridization duplication events, they just make the genomes really really hard to work with, which is a bit different from like whole genome duplications, which just like expand the genome but don't add another parent in there because it's less it's less messy and that's that's really nice because that then allows like um gene specialization and diversification from these kind of duplicates that's like a bit neater maybe but uh i mostly found things when i looked into this that were about these hybridization related uh genome duplications there's also wheat is another famous example that's hexaploid where you have um um where the genome of parents were added like two times from the diploid stage to a tetraploid stage to a hexaploid stage. Um, But the one that I picked is uh, strawberry. And uh, strawberries is an octoploid, or there's strawberry actually like this this species, uh, or the the genus contains many different species. And the most famous one, or the one that we usually know, is octoploid. Um, So it means it has eight copies of every um, chromosome uh, and it comes from actually from four different progenitors that were all diploid that were gradually uh, added to it uh, within the genus of strawberry there is uh, very varying numbers of chromosomes and I think even un- uh, even uh, ploi- uh, ploidy um, so there's diploid, tetraploids, pentaploid hybrids, hexaploid uh, octoploids, de- uh, decaploids um, so you have many different numbers of chromosomes in there. Uh, and actually, what I found out when I was looking into this is that only last year there was a big paper uh, in Nature about the strawberry genome, where they um, fully assembled the octoploid strawberry genome uh, and could even shed some light onto its um, uh, ancestors. That's why I got the number from that there were four mm-hmm. um, ancestors that are that have been deployed and sort of joined together to make the octoploid that we know now. And um, yeah, so I think that's what I choose as my favorite 
Gino I want a blind taste test this. I want to have like different strawberries with different ancestries and then like understand, okay, this special hybrid is the one with this many chromosomes or whatever, or this many, um, sorry, genomes, not chromosomes. So that I can be like, mm, it tastes pentaploidy, you know, like this has got like a unique <laughs> pentaploidy. It's it's really missing like those those extra um, genome copies that I'm 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 lacking here. I know that something that's related to the extra copies is the size of the fruit. Um, sort of in a very simplistic idea that if you have more DNA in there, the cells are larger to contain that, and so the entire fruit is larger. Um, so mm -hmm. that's often in plant breeding something that you actively try to do to create a, a duplicated genome. So um, you have a chance that your fruit will become larger then. Sometimes it's just inflated with water, so it doesn't actually get uh, more fragrant. I think and with breeding, a lot of it's yeah, just water weight these days, isn't it? Yeah, and with breeding, uh, with with strawberries, you have these like tiny in Germany we call them like forest strawberries that are much more fragrant, but much mm. smaller as well. So I wonder Wild if these might, these might have uh, le uh, a lower number of ploidy. Like maybe these are just pentaploid or tetraploid, um, and not octoploid. And also. I'd also really like to challenge the coffee tasting people. Like you had a lot of descriptive words from two weeks ago. You had like Chinese medicine. You had like old bat flavor. You had a lot of things going on there. Why didn't you have discussion about the flavor based on the ploidy? That's what I'd like to know. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my challenge to all the um, <laughs> coffee this experts. This is a very tetraploid roast. Um, yeah, yeah, I've just decided to be just really aggressive about this coffee thing. That's that's what I'm going to go with. <laughs> so yeah that's that's my answer to this question um i have one coming up already for for next week i'm excited about that as well um so if you have any questions um send them in send them to us over uh twitter facebook insta email shout them into the void and hope that we'll he hear it we're really happy to to do a little bit of research and answer your specific plant science related questions and especially because in two episodes' time, we're going to be just doing listener questions. That's going to be the 50th episode. Yeah. You're I'm informed me this morning. <laughs> this like an hour ago. Uh, fun times. <laughs> Speaking of fun. This is where the fun begins. This is where Mass the of fun segues. That's me. I have something that's really unfun. Um, just <laughs> wanted to give a really big shout out to my country. Um, you've made kind of like international science news. There's something in nature sustainability, which unfortunately I couldn't read the whole article because it's high behind the paywall. But um, the title is Science Sidelined in Approval of Australia's Largest Coal Mine. Mine. So um, congratulations, Australia. I hope you're really proud of yourself that once again you are driving our country into a giant dust ball that is filled with death and destruction. Um, it's not great. Um, <laughs> I, am, I understand economy is important, but as as a young scientist growing up and doing studying conservation biology in Western Australia, it was really disappointing to constantly hear stories of how things that were legally mandated nationally to be like to be required from a conservation point of view were really often just kind of bypassed when it came to the very very big money of the mining industry. Um, so. This has now made its way into the science world. I'm not sure anything's going to change, but get your shit together, Australia. That's that's all I'm saying. <laughs> and I, I'll uh, immediately follow this up with some Australian news as well. I found an article in The Guardian. Um, it's called Australia's Native Guava Plant Close to Being Wiped Out by Invasive Disease. Um, and yeah, it already is in the title. There's um, a native guava uh, species um, that um there used to be very dense populations of them they have been already thinned out um by like human activity and also by these these diseases and now there's an invasive fungal disease that's very efficiently killing off all of these guava plants um so what they did a recent study where they were monitoring 66 populations of these native uh, guava plants in queensland and new south wales and 23 percent of these populations could not be located anymore and another 61 percent of these 
canopies were reduced to just root suckers below a dead canopy. So pretty devastating um, to the point that they're already actively trying to conserve these guava plants in in gardens and uh, outside of natural systems to protect them from the fungal disease. Um, but apparently, yeah, this fungus species is very efficient in killing a number of related uh, guava species. So, yeah, yeah. Um, not very great. Just, just to comment on that, the, the Guardian article doesn't give the scientific name, which is a little bit disappointing. Not that I could see anyway. So it's um, Eupomatia laurina, and it's called Bolwara in the um, indigenous, one of the Aboriginal languages. So that's the, the species and what it is, this native guava. I've, I've honestly never heard of it. So I'm, yep. I'm curious. It does look like a guava. We can put some photos up there maybe. Looks tasty which is quite rare for Australian um, <laughs> crops. I would say that they actually look edible. Um, yeah. The only thing our continent has come up with commercially is macadamia nuts. That's um, <laughs> most, um, I mean, Australia has very poor soils generally um, and most of the things that grow do not want to share their fruits. They do not want to be eaten. So they make terrible tasting things, um, poisonous things, hard and angry things. But cool, poor guava. This is kind of cool. It is coronavirus related, but um, there was something in the BBC news that said that Wuhan is drawing up plans to test all ni 11 million residents um, that came out like a couple of days ago. And I'm really, I'm really interested to see how this goes down just because I'm currently in the UK where the testing is basically not happening at all, um, unless you happen to be prime minister, which then your chances of getting tested seem higher. Um, but yeah, this this is quite interesting that something can be done. I, I want to see how efficient it is. I think I think I believe they're going to do it. And I think it's going to be really impressive. I've seen on Twitter flying by a couple of news about like new multiplexing testing methods that mm. bring down the cost and s uh, speed up the whole process where you can... I don't know yeah, how it works exactly. Yeah, 32 in one is what I saw. You can do at least like 32 samples into one reaction is, is yeah. the number that I've seen, which is, I mean, I don't know what 11 million divided by 32 is. It's still quite a large number, but um, yeah. 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 But yeah, I sort of linked to that is um, an episode that I just listened to of the inquiry that's asking why Germany uh, does so well and why the, the death numbers are so low in Germany. Um, it's quite interesting to listen to, especially for me um, to, to hear an outside perspective because as Germans, we sort of by nature have a tendency to critique and be annoyed and angry at everything so we um, are very unhappy <laughs> with our health system but apparently um, according to this outside voice um, Germany's health system Germany's is one of well. the best <laughs> so um, yeah and it deal they to also well, talk about testing it was very well positioned to begin with as far as resources it has a very robust healthcare system um, yeah so it was in a good place and then also it wasn't infected as early as for example Italy and then the infections came through very young populations so they think that it got into Germany via people who were doing like ski vacations or like you know 15 20 year olds like quite yeah. young people so they were able to like recover um yeah. and things like this so yeah it's a number of, of factors that come together and the uh, inquiry episode some summarize it quite nicely um, but generally the inquiry is a really great podcast so if you want to yeah. listen to something i mean they're quite serious so it is like kind of a deep dive into facts and i would say the answers are not always like necessarily optimistic um because it does show both sides of each argument and kind of shows the pros and cons so but it's, it's just a really really informative really well researched nicely produced and just a generally great podcast i would say uh, something non-corona related that i have is um that moths are our, uh, our friends no. <laughs> and I say that because I don't like moths. moths. I don't like moths at all. Um, but there's a um, an article on the BBC that I found where they um, where they say that moths have a secret role as crucial pollinators. Uh, they mm. are compared to honeybees and some some other more commonly known pollinators. They are not as um, specific about the the flowers that they target. They are much more generalists. Uh, so during their active times, they pretty much fly to any flower that is large enough for them to to fly uh, to be in, and then they also uh, fly much longer distances within 
their sort of feeding network on plants um, and so they are very important for pollination and like with so many things these days also there is a decline in moth species um, mm. and populations so this might have um, devastating effects on ecosystems because this pollination activity is essentially shut down yeah but that doesn't apply to pantry moths so you can go in and annihilate all of the <laughs> yes. pantry moths in your life like they you are know. they're actually not animals they are de- demons like from the other <laughs> other realms they're no, no it's about this. other moths um also moths that have um sort of to, to feed for bats or birds um that might also then i have to say be i trouble. do like moths i think they're like I have this thing about animals that show off too much. So I really don't like dolphins because I think dolphins are kind of smug bastards and they're all, look at me, look at me. I'm kind of like a human, but I'm in the water. And I just I just don't enjoy that. I think sharks are better and I think tuna fish are much better. Like if you've ever seen a tuna fish, how big that thing can get really, really get, that's like that's a truly magnificent beast. And, and dolphins are just like taking all of the glory. And I would say the same about the moth-butterfly divide. Like butterflies are flamboyant, but I mean, what are they really giving to your life? Yeah, moths are the working class of um, sort of winged animals, uh, wings, wings, insects. You get a close-up on their little faces and they have those little, like, fluffy antenna. It's it's beautiful. Yeah. Well That's done, moth. why d- moths are our friends. <laughs> moths are our friends. I think something I mentioned earlier in the show is um, there's been a consensus statement in Nature Microbiology, which is basically a whole lot of scientists coming together and saying, we've decided that this is what should happen now. So the the group of scientists is the International Committee on Taxonomy of Viruses Executive Committee. Um, I don't know how many people are in there. But basically, they want to be able to rank viruses into hierarchical ranks in the similar way to how we rank actual living organisms so when Yoram and I were talking about cells before this is kind of part of the discussion that cells are for living things and viruses technically don't belong in that category because they're not really living creatures so they don't belong on the tree of life Um, but they still do evolve and they still do have genetic material and they can be related to each other or not. And this is something that's become particularly relevant with um, the COVID that's happening now. Sorry to go back to the COVID discussions, but the fact that this COVID is related to previous COVIDs that we've had, so like the SARS and the MERS, helps us understand this COVID. So it's useful to have a very like good classification system so we can quickly understand how similar one virus is to the other. So they're basically um, trying to set up a new way of ranking them. There was an old way that I think had um, kind of five ranks and now they want to have sort of 15 different ranks. And Mm -hmm. these ranks will be very similar to the kingdom, phyla, class, order, family, genus, species that we have for living things, but it's kind of just um, slightly different names i mean it's even similar names but it'll look like living things even though viruses are not living things it'll just make everything a little bit easier and as we said we humans we love putting things into little boxes and classifying them so this will really (laughs) like light up um the joy in our hearts yeah joy in in my heart was definitely lit up today when i watched the video i'm I'm, today i'm doing like the worst (laughs) oh we're so bad we're just bad today i think we're just (laughs) no but the thing that i picked up um I don't uh, account like I don't accept that it's bad. I think it's really cool. Um, it's a thing that dandel about dandelion seeds. I found it on on Twitter. It's a short video on on YouTube from the New York Times, I think, from the science section. We just why doesn't that load the title? Yeah, from the New York Times. And it deals with, um, it illustrates a study that has been done on dandelion seeds and its dispersal. And the question of why do they fly so well? Because, you know, like the when you blow on a dandelion head and you have the the seed attached with like this little uh, stick to a fluffy top. Um, Mm -hmm. And they did some uh, high-speed camera footage of the air currents that are passing by and they could see that the the air gets um, distributed or flows in such a way that it creates a vortex on top of 
the dandelion seed. Um, and this vortex creates sort of a, a pocket of under pressure that sort of lifts it up. And that's why it can fly such a long distance because the air current from below creates this vortex and this vortex pulls it up a little bit so that it doesn't fall down as quickly. Um, and that's how they can fly. And they actually managed to recreate that um, in, a, in a technical way. They, they created sort of fake um, seeds with the similar um, process and they could see that they could also create these vortices uh, on top of that um, and it's just like a very pretty video and dandelion is one of these these plants that pretty much every year around dandelion season it comes up to me and I learn something new about it um, last mm. year we did a sort of 24 hour Instagram challenge thing um, like a contest that we took part and we talked a little bit about dandelion about um it's hardiness it has this like amazing deep tap root so it's really hard for for anybody who wants to get rid of dandelion it's super hard but from a sort of um adaptation point of view it's really cool it's sap contains like a latex compound so people can actually make car tires from uh some dandelion species and now they have this pretty unique way of sort of lifting their seeds through the air with this this vortex created so it's just it's just a really cool plant um i i have one very short shout out that i also want to do for on, on twitter just a very cool idea um they say it's from from rachel hamby at hamby rachel um she lives together in like a shared housing situation with like six people three of them are scientists and one of them is a woodworking uh, person and um, they got bored and so they created a shelf that looks like a plant hormone um it's really cool so sort of they have the hexagonal shapes attached to each other so you have sort of the backbone of the plant hormone as a as a shelf and i think that's really really cool i'm really jealous of the idea and also on of the woodworking skills because i'm looking at these these joints of these these wooden boards and i have no idea how it's done um but yeah really cool really unique way of putting your books on the wall um a plant hormone related um bookshelf yeah um my shout out is um to at Awkward Botany, um, which is Daniel Murphy, is the person behind Awkward Botany. Um, and I think I originally came across him because he retweeted something that we wrote, but I'm honestly not certain. Um, and when I clicked on his Twitter homepage, I saw that he has a zine, and the zine has a beautiful picture of a little duck on the front of it, and it's called Dispersal Stories. Um, <laughs> and it's basically a kind of collection of some of the different stories that he's previously had on his blog so his blog is also called awkward botany um you can go and check it out he has different stories about different things and then um yeah let me see if i can just uh, uh, find some more information um so i bought two of his zines just one for me and one to send to somebody and when i bought it he wrote a really nice card saying hey i've, I've listened to your podcast like i really like it so i felt very special as well so thank you very much um daniel for those nice words um but then i had a look at his blog and yeah i can only recommend it it's got really different cool stories some pretty photos um it's definitely more botany related than molecular biology um related but it has a lot of like very accessible general stuff and the little zine has like some hand-drawn um images in it and a collection i mean it even has a piece about dandelions in there yarm that you might um <laughs> yeah want to hear about in fact it has a piece about the flight of the dandelion specifically um yeah so i would recommend the zine but i would also recommend awkward botany as a um blog and also when i was looking through his stuff i happened to see that he does some reviews as well and recently he did a book review on a book that Yoram <laughs> might be familiar with. Do you know what it is? Um, yeah, uh, that's actually where I found it. Um, uh, the book Fruit from the Sands. Uh, that's something... Ha! <laughs> yeah, I, I, I read his review on it and that's how I came across it. Uh, and as it so happens, that's the thing that we hinted at very poorly during the last <laughs> episodes is um, that we started a plant book club together together with Ellen Earhart. Uh, you might know her from the Plant Crimes podcast that we recommended on the channel here as well. Um, that's really cool. She's a really cool person. She sort of reached out to a couple of um, plant bloggers um, to do a plant book club, to just read a book about 
plants uh, every month and then talk about it. And we just published the first episode. Um, it's about the book uh, Emily Dickinson's Gardening Life. Um, that was really interesting to read. It's uh, yeah about Emily Dickinson. You might know her the, from her poetry and also from the Apple TV show that's currently playing. Um, and yeah, she was a very avid gardener. And this book was about her gardening and uh, sort of from a very historical perspective. And... Um, that's the first episode it's already online now and for the upcoming episode that hasn't been recorded yet we will be talking about the book fruits from the sands um, about the silk road and its influence on the dispersal of crop plants between sort of asia the middle east and uh, also europe and yeah and i found that from the awkward botany blog um it's a very good yeah. blog so maybe you actually mentioned his name before and that's how I originally found the zine. Maybe. Yeah, my memory is just a sieve these days. I have no <laughs> idea. Good, but good. <laughs> I'm very happy I did because it's Could a cool be. zine and it's it's like just a lot of like information in a kind of shorter format, which is just the great thing to pick up and kind of find out awesome new fun facts in a few minutes. And yeah. Also, it has a duck on it. Did I mention it has a little duck on it? Ducks are great. <laughs> yeah, that's called Dispersal Stories, the, the zine, and um, the blog is Awkward Botany, and you can also find him on Twitter at Awkward Botany. Yeah, and we'll link to him and the Plant Book Club and everything else in the show notes below. Everything that we talk about, you'll find links there. So I think it's time for cats. <coughs> Cat fact. You have something today, I heard. Oh yeah, mine is quite um, a quick one. So this is something that my friend Vanessa sent me again. She's really just the best for supplying the cat facts. Um, <laughs> Benjamin Lickman at Lickman Lab on Twitter um, posted something that we retweeted today, which is um, how a mint turned into cat mint. It's based on his publication, um, which is called The Evolutionary Origins of the Cat Attractant uh, nepotalactone in catnip so it's Lickman at Allen it just came out in Science Advances and um, you can guess from the title what it's about but one thing that I really like which another friend um, who is just amazing pointed out to me is that the introduction has a sentence which says most likely, the adaptive function of nepotalactones in nepeta is to protect against herbivorous insects not to stimulate cats and then it goes on. And um, my friend thought that was very opinionated as um, something to put in an introduction. He's like, how do we know? How do we know the cat mint didn't want to have the cats? Maybe the cats are coming um, to eat the insects or maybe the mint just likes the cats. Like, you don't know it's alive. Um, yeah. But anyway, I thought that was nice. And I thought that more scientists should try to make their plant science more cat related. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's really cool. I actually uh, stumbled across this uh, paper as well on a on some different channel where I was looking for like new papers and was like, ah, oh, yeah, Tegan talked uh, told me about this or tweeted about this. Um, uh, I don't have to read this now because Tegan <laughs> will take care of it. So yeah, that's really good. My my cat fact is um, that CRISPR might give us allergen free cats, and it's really. Just that now, they, um, the, the allergy-inducing capabilities of cats mostly come from um, a single protein that they have in the saliva. And now with CRISPR, it might be possible to very uh, easily delete the gene responsible to, to that and then put that into cats and then breed cats that don't have the one protein anymore that makes people all itchy and sneezy. Um, and then there are true hypoallergenic uh, cats um, there are some breeds before but they are often just like reduced in the induction of allergies but they're not really completely clean and with CRISPR it might be possible to very specifically shut down this one there's a um, um, actually I don't know if it was this is based on a study I found this on the genetic literacy project which is a pretty like pro GMO um, news site um, they collect all sorts of things about genetic modification. So actually, I don't see from the little uh, uh, article here uh, whether or not this was suggested or whether this was something that people were actually attempting. But yeah, 
just at least hypothetically um, we could CRISPR edit cats and then they, they everybody can have that. cats. There's literally no excuse left not to have cats. And I yep. think that's a good that's good news. That should be the ultimate aim of science, really. Okay, I think we have to go. I think uh, <laughs> yeah, it's been an exhausting week, to be honest, guys. We hope you're all faring okay out there and keeping good moods and happy times and you're not too tired from your homing or whatever you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, we'll see you next week or we'll talk to you next week, I guess. Um, for now, you can find us on Twitter. We're at Plants Pipettes on Twitter. There you speak to Yoram usually. Um, I'm on Instagram and Facebook. That's at Plants and Pipettes. Um, we have a website with um, articles published twice weekly about plant science stuff. www.plantsandpipettes.com Exactly. And you also find a podcast there and all of our recent episodes. And then... Um, what else do we, <laughs> you can get in touch with us write us yeah. on twitter instagram facebook email whatever especially uh for our upcoming 50s episode send us your questions about us the world plants science yeah. cats I, anything i'm really enjoying interacting with people on insta and facebook i'm getting like some cool questions coming through some really nice feedback um thank you for your kind words everyone and also thank you for the suggestions um it's, it's really helpful for us, but it's also really nice to know that somebody who's not my mother is listening to the podcast. <laughs> Just <laughs> do we have a little bit of a wider audience. It's, it's, it's lovely. It, it really makes my wake. And by the way, if you want to send us a voice, message, voice messages or anything, you can also do that by mail. Just send them to us and we can play them if you want to. Um, but just writing a short line of text is also fine. Um, then... I should write down what we usually have to say in the end. I'm Our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Cross. Philip Cross? Philip, Philip Cross. Philip Cross. Caravana by Philip Cross. And that's it for the show. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs> we'll be more alert. We'll be more caffeinated next week. I think that will be the plan. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, I'm so I'm tired. tired. <laughs>